Welcome to The Minor Consult, where I speak to leaders who are shaping our world in diverse ways. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Allison Levine. Allison is in a rare club as someone who has climbed the tallest peak on each continent and skied to both the North and the South Poles. I'm excited to discuss these feats and, importantly, how they inspired her outside of her adventures. Allison, welcome. It's great to see you. Thank you. Great to see you, too. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Well, what you've accomplished in your career is a testament to your skill, your resilience, and your tenacity. Are these traits instilled to you by your parents? Well, I think part of it goes back to the fact that I grew up in a very tough love family. So um, no whining, no crying, no complaining. That was kind of always the rule. And uh, I, you know, when I was younger, I always had these dreams about going to these remote places. I think because I grew up in Phoenix and it was so damn hot in the summer (laughs) that I like to read books and watch documentaries about these really cold environments. Antarctica, the North Pole, these big mountain ranges. But I never thought I would go to those places because I had some health challenges. So I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. Um, I wasn't properly diagnosed until I was 17 because as I said, I grew up in a tough love family. So every time I complained about, um, I can't breathe, I feel like there's an elephant sitting on my chest, my mom would say, you're fine. It's, you know, you're probably just nervous for your piano recital. And I would say, no, I don't, I don't think that's it. She'd be like, how do you know? I'm like, because I don't even take piano lessons. It was my brother that took the piano lessons. I actually took guitar lessons. So I know they talk about these, you know, helicopter parents. I like to joke that I had space shuttle parents because I know they loved us, but they weren't super tuned into what was going on. So in a sense, I, I do feel like my upbringing in my parents gave me the sense of resilience, but it wasn't because they taught me that I should be resilient. It was more that we weren't allowed to whine, cry, or complain. <laughs> so I just I just had this, I think, natural sense of resilience <laughs> as a result of that. So you were 32 and working in the corporate world when you began your ascent of Mount Kilimanjaro. How did, how did you decide to do that? And uh, it was the first milestone on your way towards the Adventure Grand Slam and, of course, so many other things. Uh, but it was a big, big life change um, yeah. at an important point in your in your career development. Can you walk us through that process? Sure. So I I had my first heart surgery when I was 17. That one was not successful, but I had another one when I turned 30. And at that point, this light bulb went on in my head and I thought, OK, wait a minute. If I want to know what it's like to be this crazy guy, Reinhold Messner, and ski 600 miles across Antarctica to the South Pole, then I should go to Antarctica and try to ski to the South Pole. If I want to know what it's like to be these mountaineers going to these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the mountains instead of watching documentaries about them. And if these other guys can do this stuff, you know, why can't I do it too? And so... I climbed my first mountain with, you know, as you mentioned, it was Kilimanjaro. I was 32 years old and I had plans to go over there with two girlfriends. Uh, and I wanted to do, you know, I wanted to do something I wouldn't have been able to do before, something I had read about, something I had dreamed about. And then two weeks before we were supposed to leave for Tanzania, my two girlfriends decided they wanted to go to Club Med in Cancun instead. So 
I had no desire to go to Club Med because, again, growing up in Phoenix, warm weather wasn't a big deal for me. So I just used frequent flyer miles that I had, and I went to Tanzania by myself. I found a local guide at the base of the mountain, I think for about $300. And I just went up the mountain with this local guide and local porters. And I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this podcast that have also climbed Kilimanjaro. It's not a technical mountain. You don't need any special gear or equipment. You just need stamina. You just need to understand that the altitude is going to make you feel uncomfortable, but even though you feel uncomfortable, you can keep going. And those are the people that get to the top of the mountain. That's so true in so many other aspects of life, isn't it? And, and then after Kilimanjaro, there were five more mountains in the next three years, uh, each more challenging than the next. Uh, and what kept you coming back? Uh, and were the, was there any ever any moment when you thought, you know, why am I doing this? And, uh, or, or did you always know that this is a milestone you wanted to uh, complete at that point in your life? Well, I never really set a goal to complete the seven summits, which is the highest peak on every continent, climbing the highest peak on each continent. It just sort of happened. And I would typically go to these mountains by myself and I would meet other people there and stay in touch with them and form these great relationships. And so then I would just ask people every time I had a break from grad school. So I started climbing right before I started the MBA program at Duke and we were on six week terms. So I had a break every six weeks. And so I would just communicate with these people. I'd reach out to them and say, oh, I have a break coming up in October or December or March. Uh, I have some time. Where would you recommend that I would go? And a lot of times they would say, well, we're going to Mount Elbrus or we're going to Karsten's Pyramid or we're going to Aconcagua. And so I would just join up with other people. And so it was just kind of a coincidence that I ended up climbing the highest peak on each continent. It wasn't like I set out to do that as a goal initially. Um, but things just kind of snowballed from there. And then Every time I would have a tough climb or I would feel like I couldn't go keep going, I would feel so uncomfortable, just exhausted, banging altitude headache, feeling like I was going to puke. I would think, okay, maybe I, sh- maybe I should turn around. But then I would think, all right, hang on, because I felt like this before, which was on Kilimanjaro, the first mountain I ever climbed. The reason that one was so important is because it was my first time at altitude. And so, of course, I felt uncomfortable because everybody feels uncomfortable at 19,000 feet. Uh, but as I was approaching the summit, I thought, I'm, I'm not going to make it. I feel like I'm going to puke. I have a banging headache. I'm going to turn around and go down. But before I do that, I'm just going to take a couple more steps. Mm-hmm. And so I would take a couple more steps. Okay, well, I know I'm going to turn around and go down, but I'll just take a couple more steps and then I'll turn around. Take a couple more steps. All right, well, hang on. Now that I'm here, I'm just going to take a couple more steps. And then eventually I found myself on the summit of Kilimanjaro. And so on every subsequent climb where I felt like I don't think I can keep going, I would think, okay, wait a minute, because I have felt like this before and I kept going then. And so I can keep going now. And I think it's so important to draw on past experiences and past challenges when you're having a tough time or struggling with something and think back, well, wait, 
because I made it through this or someone else I know made it through this and if they can do it, I can do it. And so those past climbs where I struggled really helped me on future climbs where I felt like I was really pushing myself and really outside of my comfort zone and feeling a bit overly challenged. I thought, well, I did it before, I can do it now. And feeling overly challenged isn't a reason to quit and it isn't a reason to turn around. So tallest peak on seven continents, what climb are you most proud of? Well, I think I'm really most proud of the first American women's Everest expedition in 2002, because although we did not reach the top that time, we turned around less than 300 feet from the summit in bad weather. It was an incredible experience because we were the first team of American women to even try something like this. And it was an altitude record for every member of the team. But the reason I'm so proud of it is because even though we did fail, it's just a great message about how important it is to give yourself freedom to fail. Because when you're going to try really hard things, when you're going to set ridiculously high goals and, and truly push yourself outside your comfort zone, you're going to have to give yourself the freedom to fail, right? You just come back from it better the next time around. And because I had that failure on Everest in 2002, the lessons I learned from that allowed me to go on and, and reach the summit eight years later in 2010. And I just think this message about failure tolerance is so important. And it was, I mean, it was a tough failure at the time because it was so high profile because we did have so much media coverage. Uh, we did the whole morning show circuit and the evening news anchors uh, interviewed us. 450 media outlets followed our climb, which was a lot back then. It was before social media. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> and then we, we failed. And so we had to do this post-expedition media tour where everybody was so focused on our failure. I was the butt of Jay Leno's opening monologue joke. That did not feel good. And just, again, having such a high-profile failure was very difficult to go through. But, you know, taking all the learnings from that failure and applying them to future climbs has been invaluable to me. And also, when you think about the first two people to summit Mount Everest, Sir Edmund, Hillary, and Tenzing Norgay, right? Pretty famous guys. Those guys had the benefit of all the data, all the research, all the information from those earlier climbers. Because there were a lot of guys that got out there on that mountain and tried it first. They didn't make it, so they never became household names. But those guys hadn't had the guts to try it when they did, maybe Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay would never have made it because they had all the information from those previous climbers. So I always tell sure. people, when you're going to try really hard things, give yourself that freedom to fail because first of all, come back from it better the next time around. But also, you never know who's going to be following in your footsteps, who will go on to climb really big mountains, right? Who will go on to achieve really big things because of your past experience, even if you didn't have the outcome that you wanted at the time. Can you talk about that decision? Uh, as you were mentioning, it's a, it was a very high profile climb back in, in 2002. Um, and and how did you reach that decision? And, and you were with a group, obviously, you'd, you'd work with this group for a long time. Did you reach it collectively? Did everyone come 
immediately to the same conclusion that it was time to turn back? Or, but can you walk us through that process? And maybe also, how did making that decision inform your future experience as a leader? So the problem is, is when you're making that decision, you can't think about all of that stuff. You can't think about who you owe, who you want to you know, give publicity to. You have to make decisions based on the health and safety of the team. That's always the number one goal. And I think what people forget is that the summit of Mount Everest is the halfway point. It's not the goal. Number one goal, come back alive. Yeah. Right. Number two, come back with all your fingers and toes. Uh, number three, come back having learned a lot of great lessons and as friends with the people that you're with. So there's a lot of goals that come before getting to the summit. And the majority of deaths that occur on that mountain occur after people have reached the top because mm -hmm. they use everything they have in them to get themselves to the summit. And then they don't have enough left in them to get themselves back down. So when faced with deteriorating weather as we were the question isn't do we have another two hours to make it to the top it's do we have another two to make it to the top and potentially another seven or eight to get back down and it was clear to all of us you know in our group that we did not have enough time left of a decent weather window so everybody was in agreement about turning back but <laughs> so you're you know it's the right decision at the time, but when you get all the way back down to base camp and the teams that chose the day before you to summit, they all made it so you get down and they're all there and they greet you and they say, oh, how was it? Did you get there? Did you get to the top? And you have to explain, oh, no, we turn around you know, just a couple hundred feet from the top in a storm. And the teams that picked the day after you to summit, they had perfect bluebird skies and they made it as well. So you... You have to be able to live with this decision and be at peace with it, but it is difficult because you put so much into it. All the training, you're on that mountain for two months yeah. and just thinking, oh, am I ever going to get another two months off of work? Am I ever going to find another corporate sponsor? It's not so easy. You know, Allison, as you're describing the decision, it, it, it seems metaphorical for, for life in general and that, that, that we prepare, we plan uh, everything's executed perfectly, and yet at times some of the most important things in life are dependent upon circumstance and chance. And how did that experience impact uh, your, your – you, you talk a lot about leadership. You've written a lot about leadership, and I want to get into that. But uh, how did that inform your, your worldview on leadership? And I suppose the other thing is is agency and the control over which – uh, we have uh, of our lives and circumstances? Such a great question. I used to be very focused on planning. You have to have a plan. You have to have a solid plan. This is the most important thing, right? And, and planning is incredibly important. It keeps people motivated, keeps people on track, keeps people focused. I think planning is great. But what I learned in these, uh, these remote extreme environments is that while it's a great idea to have a plan, what you have to remember is that whatever plan you came up with last year, last month, last week, this morning, your plan is already outdated as soon as it's finished, right? So yes, plan, but you cannot be hell bent on sticking to that plan no matter what. You always want to be much more focused on executing 
based on what is going on at the time. So I learned to take action based on the situation and not based on some plan. So I've really applied that to all aspects of my life in business and climbing and everything else. Well, in addition, you made the pivot from corporate America to um, adventuring and then uh, another pivot to really focusing full time on writing and speaking about leadership. Can you talk about what inspired that pivot to writing and, and speaking? Yes. So I, <laughs> I initially, I was at a, uh, an event for, they were called the Anaheim Angels baseball team at the time. Then they changed their name a bunch of times, the California Anaheim Angels, but they were the Anaheim Angels at the time. And during their spring training, which was in Arizona, they, they gave away this award for courage in sports. They gave it to two pro athletes and two amateur athletes. And I was one of the amateur athletes getting the getting the award for Courage in Sports. And nobody told me I was supposed to write a speech. And so I show up at this award ceremony and the production people said, oh my God, somehow we don't have your, your speech in the teleprompter. Can you give us, do, do you have it? And I said, speech? Nobody, nobody told me I was supposed to write a speech. And so I literally downed two glasses of wine, went in the ladies' room and wrote some notes on a napkin, and I delivered this acceptance speech, which somehow ended up to be really funny. And, um, and, and so the, the MC for the event was this guy named Lynn Swan, who's a former NFL player, and he did Monday Night Football, and he came up to me afterward, and he said, okay, you just crushed that. What do you do for a living? I said, I work in finance. And he said, you could make a living as a speaker. And I said, no, you have to be famous. You have to be an athlete. You have to be Lynn Swan to make a living as a speaker. And he said, no, you don't. And he started rattling off some names to me, people I'd never heard of. And he said, you ever heard of these people? And I said, no. He said, see, they're not household names, and they're doing really well in the speaking circuit. And he said, if you, you, know, if you don't like finance at any point and you want to transition, I really think you could have a career in that. They're very compelling stories and lessons. And you, you talked about a few, but maybe could you highlight one or two more uh, that is the most impactful lessons that yes. adventures and extreme sports have taught you in terms of your worldview, also importantly in terms of your view of leadership and business. Yes. So the two I would choose to share, first of all, one is a lesson I learned going through the Kumbu Icefall. And um, people watching or listening, you can Google Kumbu Icefall to get some photos of it online. It is an incredibly frightening part of the mountain on the south side of Mount Everest. It's 2,000 vertical feet of these big, huge ice chunks. And these ice chunks are the size of small buildings. And what happens is the sun comes up, everything starts to melt. These ice chunks start to shift around so you're in constant danger of being crushed. And then there's also these, to make it scarier, these big, huge open crevasses, these big openings in the glacier where you could fall hundreds of feet to your death. It is an incredibly frightening part of the mountain. And what you have to remember is that even though you're scared going through the Kumbu Icefall, you still have to keep going because when you stand still, that's what puts you at risk, right? When you stay still in that icefall, that's what puts you at risk of having a big block tumble on top of you or having a ladder fall out from under you. So you have to keep moving through that icefall. And it's where I learned such an important lesson, which is that Fear is okay. 
Fear is okay, people. It is just a normal human emotion. Complacency is what will kill you. Allow yourself to feel fear, but do not let it paralyze you. You have to keep moving in the face of fear. And what I learned is that you can be scared and brave at the same time. You can. You can be scared and brave at the same time. So that's one lesson. And then the other lesson that I learned in the mountains is that you do not have to be the best, fastest, strongest climber out there on the mountain every day. I used to always be so concerned about that. Watching other people blow by me. Oh my gosh, I'm not as fast as that guy. These guys, you know, I'm about five foot four. So I'd see these six foot four guys a foot taller than me, longer leg span, bigger lung capacity, just fly by me. And I think, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Maybe I'm not good enough for this. I don't think I'm going to be fast enough. I don't think I'm going to be strong enough. And all this doubt would creep into my head. And what I learned when I finally summited Mount Everest is you don't have to be the best, fastest, strongest. That's a good way to burn out. If you get out there every day and give it a thousand percent, you're probably going to burn out. So you don't have to be the fastest. You do have to be relentless about putting one foot in front of the other. That's how you get to the top of a big mountain. You put one foot in front of the other. And maybe you don't have perfect visibility. Maybe you can't see what's coming at you down the trail, but it doesn't matter. You don't have to know what's coming at you down the trail in order to keep moving toward a goal. That's great. Allison, you you shared so many important lessons, but but one fundamental lesson, and it, it, it comes out all the time in, in your writing, is how ordinary people can do extraordinary things if if and maybe that's where you could could expound a bit further. What's the if? What do people the people listening or watching today who who've thought about taking on a big challenge, but there are always a hundred reasons why it's not the right time or it might right. fail. Uh, what advice do you have and, and how do we, each of us, find that extraordinary experience, that extraordinary attribute or opportunity um, that we've always sort of known is there but that we've never really pursued? This is such a great topic. I feel like I could do an entire interview just on this topic. So I believe that we get one shot at life on this planet. Maybe I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. I hope we get multiple rounds to come back. But as far as I know, we get one. And I, for me, I just started feeling like, I, I think I only have one life. And I don't ever want to look back and think, what if? What if I would have tried this? Or what if I would have done this? And so I like to try all kinds of new things because I think that's what makes life exciting. But for people who think, oh, I could never because I'm not this or I'm not, I'm too old. I'm too young. I don't have the money. I don't have the time. I don't have, you can find it. If this is something that's important to you, you can find the time. You can raise the money. You're never too old to reinvent yourself and try something new. And so I think if people are feeling a lot of fear, like maybe they want to try something, but it feels overwhelming. I'm going to quote a friend of mine, Leslie Blodgett, who is a, a beauty company entrepreneur, um, and she wrote a book called Pretty Good Advice. And she said, you know, all these people talk about setting the bar high. She said, I like to set the bar low. 
because I know I can clear it. And then I set one a little bit higher and then a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And pretty soon I've made a ladder and I can climb as high as I want. And I really like that because instead of just thinking about something feeling like, oh, it's too much, it's too big, that's a no. Find something that's not quite as big and make that leap. And then once you get there, it's a little bit easier to get to the next one and get to the next one. I think that's such great advice. It reminds me that uh, just this summer, my wife and I went to the birthday party of a friend of ours who's 90, we celebrate his 90th birthday. And at the age of 83, he hiked the Camino de Santiago, the full length, uh, which he'd spent a couple of years preparing on, you know, shorter hikes. Um, and he took the time he needed uh, from one point to the next, uh, but quite an achievement and uh, is That's contemplating amazing. what he's going to do next. So uh, there's so much more that in inside of each of us, I think that's the me- one of the messages from. Yeah, we need uh, to hear these stories about your friend, right? right? Doing it at his age. So for people that say, oh, I'm too old for this or I'm too old for that. No, you're not. You're not too old for anything. And. I think the more we hear stories about this, especially people doing things later in life, the more inspired the rest of us are going to be to, you know, keep pushing our boundaries a little bit. Maybe we could shift gears now and talk about women in mountaineering and mountaineering and polar exploration are sports historically dominated by men. And I'm curious what your experience has been as a woman in this domain and how does it compare with your experiences in corporate America? I think for me, it's important to be a bit of a trailblazer because of that saying, if you can see it, you can be it. I know other women needed to see us on the mountain in order to feel like they could go try these these big mountains and be on these big expeditions, that there was a place for them, that they did belong there. And same thing when I was back on Wall Street, this was 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, um, there weren't that many women. And I think there more women represented in some of these industries now. But remember, the younger generations, they're looking at us, right? And they want to see uh, leadership in us. And they want to look at us and say, oh, if she can do it, I can do it. And so I think it's important, you know, for women, for, you know, people of color, just there's just a lot of different groups that need to see themselves in these jobs. They need to see others in these jobs before they can see themselves in these jobs. And so that's part of what was really fun to be on Everest in 2002. There were very few women going to big mountains and we would have people wander into our camp and say, I heard there was a rumor. There were a bunch of women here and I had to see it for myself to believe it. So they would wander into camp and people would bring us gifts and cheer us on. But I will say we also had people that definitely did not want to see us succeed. We had people that even threatened us on the mountain. We had people complaining about our media coverage because we were the first American women's Everest expedition. We were getting it because we were the first team of American women to try something like this. And we were, there were five of us, but we had over a hundred years of cumulative climbing experience between the five of us. None of us were rookies and we would have people that, you know, I would see blogs that they wrote or things they would post online that we didn't belong on the mountain and we weren't experienced enough, experienced enough to be there. And we certainly were. You've, you've also been instrumental in highlighting the story of the first Nepali woman to summit Mount Everest back in 1993. And you produced a documentary that came out earlier this year. 
why is it why is it important for her story to be told now? Thank you for asking about her. She is such an inspiring person to me. So this woman, her name was Pasang Lamu Sherpa. She was the first female Sherpa and the first woman from Nepal to summit Mount Everest. So many people may not realize that Sherpa is actually an ethnicity. A lot of people think Sherpa means carrying things up a mountain. And many of the people, most of the people that work in the Himalayan range in the mountains are of Sherpa descent. But there's also Sherpas that are doctors and lawyers and teachers and farmers and other things too. So this woman, Pasang Lamu Sherpa, she, she grew up in poverty, but she saw her brothers and her uncles and her father climbing Mount Everest, and she had a dream to climb Mount Everest as well. And so she thought, well, I should go climb this mountain. It's right here in my backyard. But at the time, this was in the late 80s, early 90s, the government of Nepal did not support female Sherpas climbing. They thought the women should be home taking care of the families, and only the men were supposed to climb. And Pasang couldn't read, couldn't write, couldn't even speak the national language because Sherpas speak a different dialect. Yet she found the courage to fight the government of Nepal for equal rights for all women in the country. And she was finally granted access to the mountain. She tried three times initially, unsuccessfully on her first three attempts. Finally summited on her fourth attempt, but she died on the way down. So she never got to tell her story. And I think it's such an important story for people to know about because it really proves that regardless of race, gender, socioeconomic background, you can change a country if you just have courage. That is the only thing that this woman had going for her. Everything else was working against her, right? She was Sherpa, an ethnic minority group in Nepal. They're a Buddhist and a Hindu culture. She was a woman. She couldn't read. She couldn't write. You know, she was born into poverty, but she became one of Nepal's most famous contemporary heroes. And she's even on the Nepali postage stamp. Every kid in Nepal learns about her in school. Everybody in Nepal knows Pasang Lama Sherpa, but no one outside of the country knows her story. And I just think it's, it was time to bring her story to the world. So I'm the executive producer of the film. And we're hoping in um, the film is finished. We're on the film festival circuit. We're hoping it will be available on a streaming platform in um, maybe early first quarter 2023. Wonderful. So the, the film is called Pasong in the Shadow of Everest. So people can look out for it in uh, hopefully April 2023 or right around there. Great. I look forward to viewing it and learning from it. So, Allison, this has been been wonderful. There, there are two last questions that I like to ask all of my guests. Uh, and first, what do you think are the most important qualities in a leader today? Oh, my gosh, there's so many. So I think the most important thing is to remember that the health and well-being of your team has to trump everything else. And when people believe that their leader cares about their well-being and cares about them as a person, not just as a, a job function, that's what instills trust and loyalty. That's what builds that trust and loyalty on a team. And when there's trust and loyalty on a team, that's what creates a high-performing team. And that's what gets a team to keep going past the 
point where they thought they might not be able to go. That's how you get people to go on to achieve extraordinary things together, right? When they feel that bond, when they feel that trust and loyalty with their teammates and from their leader, from their leader. So um, I think that's really important is developing trust and loyalty is how is, is the best way to lead. And in order to develop that trust and loyalty, people need to know you care about them as an individual, not like, hey, how's how's the finance department doing today? Everything good? No. They want to hear, hey, how, your son had a soccer game yesterday? How'd it go? Did they win? You know, how old is he? How long has he been playing? That's how you, you, you know, you tell people you care about them is when you care about them as a human being, as a person, not as a person in a job function. Such wise advice. And and finally, uh, what gives you hope for the future? My dog. Uh, no. <laughs> He's the only thing I have faith in right now. Um, what gives me hope for the future is that I think younger people today. So I'll tell you what gives me hope for the future, and then I'll tell you what concerns me about the future. And it... Young people today, I think, care a lot more about leadership. I think they care about the planet and, you know, taking care of the planet. Obviously, you know, the environment's important to me and the the types of things that I do. And I think in general, they are more focused on like mental health and well-being. And I think that is something that's so important, especially in today's age of social media, which I think is terrible. I think Instagram, Facebook, I I know people love these platforms, but I think they do so much damage. I am not a fan. I rarely post them when I do. It's usually just a picture of my dog. I don't post very often. Um, But I think that young people today care about the, the planet, and I think they care about being strong leaders, um, which is something I know when I was younger and growing up, I didn't really have exposure to leadership development. So I didn't really think about that. I was in student government and things like that, but I wasn't thinking about it in like long-term ramifications and what I can do as a young person to help other people achieve big things, to help other people go after big goals. Um, So it gives me hope that I have a lot of faith in young people in one respect, but the other thing that worries me and that just keeps me up at night is the lack of, I would say like acceptance of differing political beliefs and this, this trend of young people feeling like they're unsafe because somebody with differing political beliefs is coming to speak on campus. And they're not coming to speak about anything political. Maybe they're coming to speak about the environment or the economy or something like that. But somebody read somewhere that five years ago that this speaker was pro-life. And so we don't want them coming to campus because we don't feel safe. And I don't, I'm like, how are you connecting these dots? How are you connecting these dots to feel unsafe or to feel disrespected because somebody has different political views than you have? Let me tell you, you're going to meet people when you get out into the world, young people and old people of every age. You have to be able to work with people that are 
have very different political views and different views on almost any type of topic. And you don't have to agree with them, but you should treat them with respect and want to learn more about their views. Well, Alison, thank you so much for joining me today, for sharing your experiences, uh, your thoughts about leadership uh, with us, and we really appreciate it. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with adventurer and leadership expert Allison Levine. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind. <music>